into the moth light. Hello again and welcome to Into the Mothlight, a podcast dedicated to artists' moving image, experimental film and festivals and installation art. Screen Bandita are an Edinburgh and Melbourne-based collective that strives to, through various activities, create an environment where previously abandoned film can be given a new lease of life through its contextual reimagination and exposure to a new audience. They describe themselves as cinematic outlaws, artists, archival agitators and analogue alchemists, exploring the found and the forgotten. Our Edinburgh Bandita is Lydia Bilby. She's an artist, curator and educator, and has held the position of short film programmer for Edinburgh International Film Festival since 2010. Her love of analogue technology and the possibilities offered by the rediscovery of found footage is quite contagious. Indeed, even watching her behind the 16mm film projector is a captivating experience. I was able to meet with Lydia recently and asked her first where her fascination with abandoned and forgotten film started. Into the moth light. I guess I've always just been interested in ephemera, beautiful things. I've been a collector all my life. My parents are collectors. I've always loved beautiful things. And I think that 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 extends to film material as well. And I began to become very interested in um, Super 8 as a format. This is how Screen Bandita started. Um, Myself and a couple of friends found that we were all shooting little films on Super 8 and we wanted to come together to make work collectively, communally. We were three women working in a kind of slightly more experimental vein and we wanted to explore what that could mean and Super 8 technology was was very accessible to us. We loved the aesthetic of it. And in terms of the, the collection of films, that kind of happened very organically, very naturally. Um, each of us had uh, films that came from our families that we excavated from attics. So stuff like grandparents' wedding films or christening films. So that's kind of how the Screen Bandita archive started. And then it's, things kind of spiralled out of control from that point <laughs> in the sense that I, I love scouring flea markets, car boot sales, charity shops. It's a way that I kind of explore cities, a way to discover cities. When I travel, I go to flea markets. And I love the sense of uncertainty and chance and what one might find in in these kind of spaces. And, and from there, I was coming across films. I was coming across boxes of, of kind of anonymous found films. And there was a sense of possibility that came from that, that I found very exciting and, and creatively very inspiring. This work that floats free of any kind of context, at one point, it's potentially meant quite a lot to the people who chose to shoot those family films but but now they're obsolete objects that are in a flea market they have almost no value within the kind of system of uh, monetary exchange and that's also appealing to me so it's something that's kind of outside of the capitalist system but for me it has great value creatively and culturally and it also taps into this sense of kind of communal memory as well and we started to explore what what we could make with these with these films, how we could reinvigorate them creatively to create new pieces of work. 
So when, when, when you started to work with 8mm back in, well, I guess we're talking about maybe 10 years ago and, and the early days of Screen Bandita, can you remember your first experiences of um, watching 8mm being projected and, and then actually going on to, to film with it and, and wait for the results to come back and be processed? The first experiences were watching our own family films I guess so that was a very interesting way to kind of get to know my my friends and, and colleagues the other two members of Screen Bandita Leonora and Evie at that point so it was it was kind of very um, precious we were watching our family archive films so there was a sense of, of sharing something very intimate between ourselves and seeing something um, of ourselves in those films as well, which was very profound and interesting. And I think that really led us on to thinking about this idea of um, collective memory, the sense that I could be watching a film of somebody else's family, but I see something in there that resonates with me emotionally. And it's a way of connecting with other people through memories, which kind of continues to reverberate through my work to today. And I do a lot of work with communities. I run um, a traveling workshop called Bring Your Own Archive, in which people are invited to bring along items or ephemera from their own personal archives. And the idea is to tap into this notion that and we all have an archive, we all are a living archive. And it's also to explode this idea that archives are things that are held behind glass, inaccessible, handled only by archivists in white gloves. It's an idea of getting kind of hands-on with archival material. So we ask people to bring along something that says something of their own experience or something that means something to them and it's an opportunity to see a film or a, a slide or some photographs in a community context and to share those memories with other people. So that's really interesting to hear how that's gone from watching um, the, the, the kind of home movies of your family and the uh, families of, of your friends as well. And then in terms of the, the collective, because I've, I've had a chance to meet um, representatives from a lot of film collectives over the years, why is uh, joining up with like-minded people important for you? I think I've always really enjoyed working alongside other people. Creatively, I find it very stimulating, the sense of working in very close collaboration with other people who are of a similar mindset is is not only really interesting but really challenging as well so i think it's i think it's really helped me to develop as an artist and as an individual working so closely with other people has has just been constantly and continues to be really interesting and it, and it kind of changes shape and morphs as well so the collective started off with three members then it moved down to two now there are two of us but my colleague Leonora is in Australia so you know we're working remotely from each other we're both doing different work but but still we know that we have each other on the other sides of the world perhaps but you know there's that sense of kinship and that sense of solidarity so it's it's really nice to think that Bandita has has stretched her legs to Australia and continues to kind of reverberate through through Scotland and the UK as well. Yeah because I, I was interested in that and the, the fact that you are working mostly on, on, on celluloid so it's not as if you can be sharing um, Final Cut Pro X files uh, over over broadband so how does that collaboration continue to kind of work and you feed off each other it was very challenging at first but I, for us it was about finding a way that we could go forward 
collaboratively while embracing the kind of distance as an interesting creative tool. So for most of the time we're working on our own projects, but our projects kind of run run um, in in synergy with each other, if you like. But sometimes we're, we're able to, to come together to perform, to screen our work at different festivals or at different venues. But also we've, we've kind of explored how a long uh, distance collaboration could work. So we made a piece um, two years ago and it, it continues to kind of morph and change shape. And actually we, we performed this alchemy as well as in Berlin. And it's a piece called Future Ruins. And each, um, it was a collaboration between Leonora and I and a, um, an experimental musician, um, Neil Simpson and a, and a drummer, Shane Connolly. And each of us took charge of slightly different elements of the performance and then we we brought them together when we performed it and we we also um structured the piece around a a piece of writing that we made collectively so we we began with an image then the image was passed on to the next person in the chain who would then create a piece of writing around that image that piece of writing went to the next person in the chain who would read the piece of writing once put it aside and make a piece of writing in response to that. So this kind of iteration continued. So it was almost a sense of kind of exploring um, a notion of Chinese whispers through image and text. And that kind of cut up of text, which we recorded and manipulated and read out and performed along with the films was was the backbone of that performance. So I think for us, it's it's... Uh, finding ways that our distance can be channeled into interesting creative projects. And an, another way that we've worked is we made um, a slide conversation. So Leonora and I exchanged 35 millimeter slides and it was an, an experiment in how one would respond to images. So I sent Leonora an image, she responded with an image, which I responded to. And then we brought this together as, as a, a slide piece, a performance with text overlaid. So for us, it's it's been a, a process of great transition with, with her moving away, but it's been, it's also been interesting and enriching, I think, for our practice. Into the moth light. Into the moth light podcast. I did want to ask you about about collaboration out with the sort of Screen Bandita um, collective. So, what what do you look for in, in a collaborator? What what are the elements that you like to have around you um, for, for this to, to work for you? I think I'm looking for people who will challenge me. I think it's 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 really interesting as an artist to work with with people who work in different ways or take different approaches and for your way of practicing to be interrupted somewhat and challenged so I look for people whose work resonates with me um, aesthetically or, or emotionally or orally but then also people who work perhaps in a different way to me I'm, I'm interested in how mixing up my practice and my approach can create new outcomes that could be quite kind of exciting 
you perform events showcasing the different combinations of 8mm film, 16mm film, slides, images all, all projected. So you, you talked about where you can sometimes find your, your source materials, what's on those old reels that you're, you're finding, and how, how do you engage with that to kind of um, explore the fabric of the celluloid and the images contained within? I mean, the, the kind of panorama of, of different images that you find on, on found reels is, is really staggering from early education films to science films to newsreels to family family films. And that's, for me, one of the exciting things about working with found film. You find a reel at a car boot sale or a flea market and, and you don't necessarily know what's on it. So it's, it's for me, that, that gives me the creative impetus to engage with that material because it's floating free of its original context. You know, it was maybe made as a science film 50 years ago. But now it's lost that context, it's untethered. So it's it's finding a way to engage with that creatively in the present. And what I'm really interested in is, is this notion of, almost a notion of time travel, if that does, doesn't sound too ridiculous, that you can engage with in working with media this way, in the sense of working with something that's archival from our vantage point in the present to create something completely new to go forward into the future with. So it's it's this I'm excited and inspired by this this idea of kind of creative reinvigoration that comes from working with archival material. Mm-hmm. So t- tell me about your your creative process then. So when you start a new work and and perhaps you've got some some themes or ideas that you maybe want to think about um what's your approach to to going through the archive that you already have and and thinking about which couple of frames might be manipulated to, to, to change into something else, what the audio is going to sound like, um, what else you're going to add to it. So what is the creative process to, to build it from a thought in your head mm. to something that then you can share at mm. a festival, for example? Mm. I think it begins for me with a research process. So maybe I'm thinking around those themes, I might be reading around those themes, I might be watching... Uh, films by artists or filmmakers who grapple with those themes by way of inspiration. Um, I'll be talking to people. For me, that's a really good way of kind of bashing out those ideas, writing about them, um, maybe sketching some stuff out, thinking about ways forward in terms of uh, colour, tone. I mean, it's it doesn't always come together in the order in which the piece might be shown. I might break it down. I might think about different sections. I'll be probably working with um, a collaborator. That's could be a musician, could be a poet. So I'll be kind of exchanging, um, exchanging thoughts and ideas with them too. It might come, the impetus might come from a text. There might be a kind of narrative thread of some kind, however tenuous, that might run through the whole piece and from that ideas spring out. So, I mean, for me, this is a really beautiful part of the process, the way that the idea comes into being. It's very exciting just to be very playful around that as well, to just see experiment, see what happens, try some things out. You know, maybe there's a process that I've been wanting to work with for a while and this gives me the chance to do that, see what happens, see see what comes out of it and see if there's any kind of direction that comes from that or oh could I could I use that section in this part of the piece so I mean I love that process it's 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 really exciting and it's different every time I mean 
different pieces come together in different ways. There was a piece we made a few years ago called Adrift, and um, we were commissioned as artists to work with the archive at the Battersea Art Centre down in London, which is a, a building that has an absolutely in- incredible history, and it's a very kind of long-standing space of, of radical intent, and there, there were early suffragette meetings there, kind of a really interesting um black power meetings in the late 60s and early 70s, history of kind of reggae music, dance hall, lively culture. Um, and then, of course, the kind of theatrical um, history that, that, that now inhabits the space. So we were drawing upon that history to make a piece. But really interestingly, when we went down there to do our residency, they'd sent the paper archive away to be digitized. So there was nothing for us to work with. But actually, that turned out to be incredibly exciting, because it meant that we had to approach things in a completely different way. And we were thinking more about the resonance of the space, and the kind of layers of presence and and being imbued into the very kind of ether, the essence, the walls of the Battersea Arts Centre. So it was more about kind of distilling a sense of the history in that way, rather than drawing upon um, precise facts and figures. And so I think that was a really interesting way of approaching archival exploration for me. Into the moth light. Into the moth light. One of the things I'm uh, becoming increasingly interested in is as I talk to different artists and um, through my own practice is um, when you consider the fabric of celluloid in 8mm or 16mm film, of course what you're seeing is is a series of still images projected at a certain rate. Uh, And I know you've got an interest in over and above the actual images on the celluloid, but but that that, that space that exists between those frames and the light that's projected through it as well. Absolutely. I I mean, a a key kind of facet of my practice over the last couple of years has has followed the thinking that Um, film is a body so for me film is a living entity it responds to its environment and it takes on a sense of its lived experience and and projects that back to us as as the film is projected and passes through a projector and I'm excited by the possibility of this process and there's a kind of sense of film having a heartbeat as the projector moves and there's a sound that's very rhythmic And, and for me it's a kind of synesthetic experience of of seeing film projected from in an analog means and it it kind of it has a sensory element to it that moves me very much and I'm very interested in that and I think in the last couple of years my practice has has led towards that thinking and exploration of ideas around this notion of film as, as a body and film having a memory film is memory that brings me on to one of the other questions I wanted to talk to you about. So I think the last time I saw you at work, as it were, you were projecting the, the Stan Brackage film Text of Light and, and an old castle here in the mm. Scottish borders. And I did have one eye on a film, of course, but I was fascinated <laughs> to watch you. When you project on 60mm, especially something as precious mm. as Text of Light, um, you never sit still. It's not as if you, you click on 
the, the bulb and projector and sit back and enjoy. You're constantly, mm. constantly in, in, in tune and in touch with that machinery. Absolutely. I mean, I felt very acutely I was in, in dialogue with the projectors at that point. I mean, it was not only an incredible privilege to project that print of Stan Brackage film in that incredible space, but there is also a kind of symbiosis that one has with the projection machinery. And it's it's a really kind of hands-on relationship that one has with the film strip as well, making up the prints for projection. You're handling the prints, you're lacing the projectors, you're keeping an eye on the machinery. I'm listening and I'm watching. I can feel the way the film's moving. I'm listening for the sound of the projector. Does it sound as it should do? Again, it comes back to this idea of the projector having a as being a kind of heartbeat. You know, I'm. It's a very kind of embedded connection that I that I have with the apparatus. So it's at that moment I'm thinking about a lot of different things. I'm thinking about what's being projected, but I'm also thinking about the apparatus, about the machinery, and this is one of the reasons that I really love working with photochemical film because it's it's the hands-on connection that you have to the material. As a projectionist, you actually have a huge responsibility and also a creative input in the way that the film is screened. And I, it's a very active relationship. And this is always something that I've been interested in and something I've wanted to explore through my work, this notion of being not just a passive observer, but a participant. So, you know, when I've shown work, I want people to feel like they're participating, that they're not just taking in and being told what to think and what to see. And this is something I love about the projector. You see the projector, it's a beautiful thing. It's placed centrally in the space. You see the projectionist lacing the projector. You see the physical machinations behind showing this print. And it's a magical process as a strip of inanimate film passes through a projector and is projected as a piece of beautiful dancing light on a screen in front of you. It's magical. I agree. It is magical. <laughs> the last time we met, um, you were presenting and recording at the Edinburgh International Film Festival. Um, he was showing his new film, Lick and the Dog. And your Q&A with him was far better than my podcast interview uh, on, on the day. Um, and you can find that uh, on our SoundCloud page if you are interested. Um, what is it about his work that, that fascinates you? And I guess he's another filmmaker that does mm. dip heavily, although in a different way, into an archive that he's mm. built over the years as well. Certainly, Andrew's engagement with archive really interests me greatly. But I think it's, it's the imbuing of his work with such a personal sensibility that's always resonated with me. I'm, the first work of his that I ever saw was Gallivant, and that continues to be one of my favorite films. And it's a beautiful film about connection and about landscape. And I think he's a really singular voice in film, never mind experimental film. And I feel the passion through his films. And I love the kind of engagement of sound and image and archive. And I think that he's he's just really a very, very inventive filmmaker and, and a fascinating character. And he's a person that you don't have to actually ask that many questions. You ask him one or two and that, that's him for the duration of the Q&A normally. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it was a really interesting conversation and it was... It was a wonderful opportunity to be in conversation with him. I mean, it was 
I was very nervous actually because he's a hero of mine but it was also something I was really desperate to do and I was really interested to speak to him about his approach to archival material because mm. as you say it's a kind of cornerstone of, of his his film work and I'm always interested in the way that it he melds archival material into his films in a way that feels really kind of uh, natural and, and seamless. And I was interested in his process of how he digs into the archival material, where he finds that material. And um, it was really interesting in, in relation to Leck and the Dogs. He'd, I think he'd worked with the, was it the Anglia Film Archive in order to find yeah, material? Yeah, I think he's got a good relationship with, with one that's quite local. And maybe once a year he goes down just to see what else they have. And I think from memory, he said the person who curates the archive has an almost photographic memory. Mm. So if he's want, if, if he's looking for something in particular, mm. um, that individual knows exactly what to pull out of mm. the archive, which must be great to have that kind of resource. Absolutely. We mentioned your work at the film festival, so you're a short film programmer and you've been there for a number of years now. It must be lots of people's dream job to watch films for a living, especially in, in the beautiful surroundings of the Edinburgh Film House and, and under the banner of the, that particular film festival. So what was your journey into there and how do you think that ties in with your own artistic practice? So my journey to becoming a programmer was, com I came from a kind of completely DIY background. You know, I was as a teenager, I was very, very into punk. So I was, I was obsessed with kind of nineteen seventies culture, DIY culture. Rip it up and start again. Here are three chords. Now go and form a band. Fanzines, women making really interesting music and throwing off the kind of patriarchal shackles of nineteen seventies prog rock to make really interesting music. So I think my I had that kind of grounding and I thought, well, why not? I want to start putting on a little film festival. So I started a very, very kind of grassroots feminist experimental film festival in Edinburgh that ran over a weekend. Some screenings at, at the Cameo Cinemas, that was um, contemporary short films. And then there was an, two archival programs, one of Margaret Tate, the great uh, Edinburgh Orcadian filmmaker, and one of, of Maya Darren's work, simply because I love her work. And, and she was really a kind of cornerstone in my, of my education in terms of, of experimental film. And I felt like her work wasn't screened enough. So there was a sense of kind of writing that by, by putting on a screening. So it was really just seeing seeing a gap and, and kind of doing something. And there was no real kind of consideration about not having any uh, training in being a curator. I had the enthusiasm, I had the interest, I had the passion, and along with a couple of other people, we just did it. And I think that's the best way to get into these things. You know, start doing stuff yourself. If there's something that you want to show, find a space, make it happen. Into the Mothlight is a Charles S. Bravo production. 
You can follow us on Twitter at the Mothlight Pod. Email your questions and comments to mothlightpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook at Mothlight Podcast. Like us, rate and review us wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast isn't sponsored by anyone. Perhaps you can do something about that. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you.